0: Heavenly Father, give us grace today as we focus in on Your nature in a special way. Lord, Your eternal attributes and specifically those which endear us to You most as Christians. Your love, Your grace, Your goodness. Everything we have comes from Your hand. You have been represented uh, in a way that maligns your character by the world, Lord, but we your people know you. We are the beneficiaries of all the good things that you give. Help us to celebrate you in this time. Help us to remember, to remember all that you have done. Train our hearts to look back on the great actions that belong to us as a part of our history, that you have undertaken on behalf of your people that we may have confidence in the future and that faith may be easy. We praise you and we thank you for this in your son's name. Uh, You may have noticed that the powers that be want us to live exclusively in a perpetual present, in a sort of eternal now. And it's not even merely that they want us to keep the past in the past, but that they want us to burn everything that was so that even the memory of it no longer remains. So that if we should at some point have the sense to look behind us, all we will see there is ashes. And when we look ahead, we will see the promised new heavens and new earth, all of their design and a new humanity created in their image with such novel features as androgyny and collectivism and communism and paganism saw a montage the other day of a certain prominent politician saying what seems to be her favorite thing to say. She repeats in speech after speech after speech uh, some variation of we need to have the vision to see what can be unburdened by what has been. And she says this so often, in fact, that numerous outlets have assembled montages of this kind to make fun of her. But if you laugh with them, don't just laugh. Because while that statement is not nearly as pithy and profound as she obviously thinks that it is, it is extremely worthy of your attention. Erasure of the past is a satanic device and one as old as time and memorial. And Satan pursues this tact because what lies behind us provides us with the wisdom and truth necessary for our survival, speaking naturally, but especially spiritually. And Satan, being anti human as he is, seeks our extinction. And through the withholding of the wisdom of the past, he is well served in that pursuit. He knows what you and I must learn and remember, and that is that if he is able to steal our past, he will steal our future with it. That's why when God made a nation, he instituted into it and into its religious practices so much remembrance, and of course that is ancient Israel. I should think for a moment on some of the feasts that were ordained by God. we won't go through all of them, but think first of the Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah. That was about repentance. And repentance, obviously, requires remembrance of sins. Feast of firstfruits, that was a reminder or a memorial of God's provision to the Israelites in the Promised Land, having been emancipated from the Egyptians. Feast of booths. That was a time of remembrance of God's provision for his people as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. There is Purim or Lots that was a memorial of their deliverance from Haman as is recorded in the book of Esther. It's the Feast of Lights called Hanukkah. And this one is not like the others because it wasn't instituted uh, in the Old Testament. It originates in the intertestamental period of time around the events concerning Antiochus Epiphanes and the Maccabees and their revolt, but this also was deliverance granted to the people, and our Lord did celebrate this in John 10, so it deserves to be on the list, but again, a time of remembrance. Finally, think about Passover. Passover was a time of remembering when the Lord provided salvation for his people through the blood of the Lamb that was put on on the doorposts, and above the door as well. When he did not visit upon them wrath. And by the way, such a time of remembrance remains for us. As a New Testament church, there is a Christian Passover, and you and I will be engaged in it together here shortly. If you are a believer, it is the Lord's Supper, where the Passover lamb provided his blood, and his body was broken for us as well. And we do this in remembrance of him. And yet all of those calls to remembrance also point forward at the same time. Purim, Hanukkah, Passover, all about deliverance. We remember the deliverance that was so that we may trust in the deliverance that will be. Passover also was not just about the salvation of those covered by the lamb's blood, but also the destruction of those not covered. So we are reminded that salvation remains as does wrath for those who are not covered by the blood. Booths and first fruits were about the provision that was, but it was also faith in the provision that would be. They were honoring God for his past provision and trusting him for future provision. One of the things that uh, Brad brought up that I found very much profound uh, when he went over this, I think it was last week in CE hour, was the fact that when you give your first fruits, you don't know how the rest of it's going to work out. As a farmer, as a gardener, you know how this works. There's nothing to say that disease and pestilence is not going to come upon you after that point. So if you're giving your first fruits, the best of what you have, the first of what you have, that's a great step of faith great act of believing that the Lord will provide from there. Because if he doesn't, you're going to be hurting. But all this said, I, I do have it on supposedly good authority that those feasts are worthless anachronisms, testimonies of a bygone age, and so who cares? Well, I care, and uh, you should too. And this is true for a few reasons. First off, 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, For correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So it occurs in Scripture, therefore it is in that category of things that matter, and matter greatly. Furthermore, their past is our past. I am a son of Abraham, according to the faith. If you are a child of God through Christ, you are a son or daughter of Abraham, according to the faith. And if we are children of the faith, then we are more children than we would be if we were only children of the flesh. Because the flesh is the substance of our biology, but the faith is the substance of our souls, and the flesh fades while the soul endures forever. But we ought also to care about the emphasis upon remembrance that is exemplified in the religious practices of Old Covenant Israel. Because Old Covenant to New, we humans share the same nature. We forget like the ancient Israelites and so we must remember like them. We cannot forget to remember the past or we will be lost in the present and we will also lose the future. And this should also be a joy for us because for a people whose God is Yahweh, the past is not a burden at all. It's a blessing. History is the story of God moving from victory to victory and our history is the story of his exploits. And what he has done proves that he will yet do all that he has promised. And that is what Psalm 145 is all about. It is remembering the past in order to secure the future, and that's what we're going to be studying today. Now, we haven't left behind the book of Acts. We have taken uh, a detour, a relatively brief one, uh, for this week only And the reason for that is because Peniel is shorter than it usually is. If you've been in the past, you know that I have two sessions there with you. This year I only have one because we cut one of the days out. And uh, I don't have a whole lot of things that I'm persnickety about, but what I will never do is rush my study of the material. So this requires two sessions. I will give it two sessions. One here delivered to you now, one delivered at camp. I understand that not all of you are able to go to camp, This year, so rest assured, the conclusion of this will be recorded and you can listen to the end as well as you did the beginning. But before we get into the substance of Psalm 145, I want you to understand something of its authorship and its general nature. The author is David, as indicated by the heading above the psalm in my Bible and yours, which reads, the Lord extolled for his goodness, a psalm of praise of David. And the fact of Davidic authorship hardly renders this work unique amongst the psalms. It's impossible to know exactly how many of the psalms David wrote because some of them do not have that kind of a heading, letting you know who the author is. But according to style and substance, it is believed that David wrote something like 73 of the psalms that occur in the Psalter. What does make this unique is that it is the final Davidic psalm in the Psalter. So this is the most prolific poet in the Christian faith, the most consummate theologian and prophet of the Old Covenant, first king of the covenant, who foreshadowed the final king period, speaking to you and I for the last time. And perhaps because this is his final word, the Spirit leads him to do so in a way that ensures that little Hebrew boys and little Hebrew girls will remember what he has told them. First verse of this psalm begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, second with the second, and so on and so forth from there as a literary device again to aid in their remembrance. So I guess that means that you and I are at a disadvantage in this because in English this device to help remember is moot. But we must remember because the substance of this psalm is as imperative for our spiritual well-being as it was for theirs. Now in terms of laying this study out, the psalm again is about the past bearing upon the future, So we will let the past and the future comprise our two headings. And the uh, first, the former, will be dealt with in this sermon, forthwith, beginning with the reading of Psalm 145, which we will do together in its entirety. And then I will start to, after that, expound what we have read. Psalm 145, 1. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness, and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. First let me make clear that in this session I'm going to emphasize the past and pass over much of the future aspect of this, but I cannot divorce the two. Uh, Not in general, but certainly not because of the way that this psalm is constructed. The past constantly bleeds into the future and is regularly related to the present as well. But the weight of this study is going to lean heavily toward what has been. And it seems to me that the place to begin here is with who God is which is obviously also who God has always been and who he will always be. And this part of the study doesn't really fit into past or future considerations squarely because God reigns over both. This is a psalm that vacillates between all three tenses past, present, and future, but the only thing not moving forward or backward here is God himself. The seas are shifting and they are heaving, but Yahweh is the anchor and his position holds. But we begin here first because there's no framework for understanding past, present, or future if you don't first understand him. And to start to understand the psalmist's perspective on God, look first to verse 3. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. I first off recognize that while Yahweh is not the only name for God used in this psalm, it is used here for very good reason. Elohim which is used elsewhere in Psalm 145 is a corporeal earthen term it is one used to connect God to the earth it is the name that is used in the creation account it is also uh, used of men and of angels at certain points in scripture. It is not unique to God, but it is unique in the way that it is used when it's ascribed to God. Yahweh, though, rendered Lord in verse 3, by its nature totally distinguishes God from the earth. And not just from the earth, also from the heavens and from the angelic host. From all things, everywhere, in every time, Period. Things immaterial, things material, this name absolutely others God. And what does it mean exactly? Well, I'm not sure that as a name and title and term, it really fits into an exact definition, which is not to say that Yahweh is a word without a meaning, but it is a word without a meaning that is clear. It means I am or I am that I am. Does that clear up all the issues with God that you would ever have or any of them? It's not a utilitarian kind of a name. You know, human beings, we have last names that communicate certain things. Most of our names don't mean anything, but we do have some uh, that point to the past and used to mean something. Smith is one of these, or the German Brenner. Both of these meaning maker, or in the case of the latter, also doer or keeper. Once had a teacher by the name of Glass Brenner, because her ancestors had made glass. And there is a name for God, by the way, that has this same character but that name again is Elohim it defines him as creator Yahweh on the other hand is by design much more enigmatic when God introduced himself to Moses from the burning bush he announced himself as and defined himself as I am partly because the meaning of that is not clear yes Yahweh has a technical interpretation and a technical meaning and that again is I exist or I am or I am the self-existent one but again that is hardly clarifying in fact, it prompts more questions by far than it answers, and that is part of the point. And that point is very well furthered by David when he in the same breath follows Yahweh with, and his greatness is unsearchable, i.e. enigmatic, unknowable, or literally translated, and this is choppy because it is literal, there is not a search. Same term is used in Job 9.10 where it says, who, meaning God, does great things unfathomable, there it is, and wondrous works without number. Let me give you a great paradox in the Christian faith, and one I think that is not commonly thought of. If you don't know God, you cannot worship Him. Worship involves the recognition of the worth and majesty of God, and if you don't know Him and know about Him, then you cannot recognize what you do not know obviously. Yet, on the other hand, if you don't know that you don't know Him, you prove that you don't know Him at all. And thus you also cannot worship him. With God, that which must be known about him is manifest in what we call general revelation, which is creation, and much of this psalm deals with that. Then you have the category of things that may be known about him, and these are manifest through special revelation to men and to angels, and this is the gospel and all involved in it. But there does remain layers upon layers after these things. And these exist in his mind and they are accessible to three persons only, yet one being. The Father knows all of his own nature, obviously. The Son knows all of the Father's nature and the Spirit's. The Spirit knows all of the Son's nature and the Father's, but they alone can make this claim. But while we do not know what cannot be known but by God, we can and we do And we must worship him for his vast incomprehensibility. What we know endears us to him, while what we do not know puts us in awe of him. With the result of praise, as David says in verse 3, Great is the Lord, and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. So what you cannot understand, you can and must praise the Lord on account of. But next, consider verse 7, they, being the men of the previous verse, shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. As Reformed Christians, we don't avoid that whole conversation about the wrath of God. We love God. We love all of Him. We love all that results from all that He is. One of the things that results from His righteousness is His wrath. So you best believe that we won't be editing out one of the major results of God's righteousness in a fallen world Which is spoken of in verse 20, it is his wrath, all the wicked he will destroy. But Christian, there is a matter beyond the simple yet important consideration of are we willing to acknowledge all that God is. There is also the matter of is our focus on who God is proportional to his representation of himself in scripture. And when we're thinking about who God is as it relates to us as Christians, is our perspective consistent with how he is disposed toward us as his dear little lambs? Or are we all the time being reactionary to the excess that's common to our age? Well, you know, this heretic or that says that Jesus just loves everybody everywhere all the time, so we have to push back and push back and push back. Yes, indeed, but not always. Don't let your perspective be skewed by that. Ask yourself, Is God more commonly good, or is He more commonly wrathful? As we encounter Him in Scripture and nature and in our own walks with Him, the answer is He is far more commonly good. And you shouldn't even have had to hesitate on that. It's not close. As David says, verse 9, The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. And verse 15, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. Now, despite the absurdity espoused by certain theological traditions, all does not mean all, all the time. Because as I say, to the best of my knowledge, I coin this, it's probably not worth very much, but at least it does originate with me. I say all always has a context. But here, all actually does mean all. Now, David's going to narrow his focus down to God's care of his godly ones, but here he speaks of everybody. So how good is God? Well, God is good enough to tend to the material care of those who gnash their teeth at the very mention of his name, rebels from the cradle to the grave, who will never turn, ever, who will never once utter a word of gratitude to him for the things that he has given to them. And he will delay for many of these, their judgment, 70, 80, maybe 90 years and beyond. All the while they will experience the joy of having families, the joy of loving in human relationships, of being loved in human relationships, of building wealth, of feeling the sunlight on their face, of walking into nature and beholding in awe, yet never recognizing the maker And he is also so good that he cares for all the creatures on earth. From the bugs that are currently in my compost pile, doing their good work of breaking that down so that I'll have that fertility in the spring. To my chickens, who are doing their good work of making eggs and also pooping a lot so that I will have that fertility. To add to my garden in the spring as well. To our rabbit, who is doing his good work of providing my wife with no small comfort in this life. God, and I, I kind of hesitate to acknowledge this, he's even good enough to care for the garden-destroying scourges known as gophers. And in fact, he, he often provides for them through me. They are very fat off of my peaches. They are, though included in verse 16, I have to admit, where David says, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. So God is unquestionably good. But there's a problem with good as an English word, and that is that we commonly use it in such a generic way. Probably had a conversation like this this week. Hi, honey, how was your date? It was good. Uh, so then we see that God is good, and we go, "Well, yeah, okay, God is good. Good. Now, of course, we understand intellectually that God good is defined by God, so it is very, 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 very good, But even so, because of the commonality of this term and the flippant use of it in our vernacular, we struggle. So perhaps the term that David uses in verse 17 will help clarify further as it helps qualify God's goodness. The Lord is kind in all his deeds. And what is meant by kindness? Well, consider the antecedent in 2 verse 17, which, as you might have guessed, occurs in verse 16. Again, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. If you will, consider all of creation a banquet hall of unimaginable scale. And in this banquet hall of unimaginable scale, you have an incomprehensibly vast table. And seated at this table is all of life. And God is the one who sets that table every single day. And that is something of what is behind, I think, W.S. Plumer's description of this. He says, quote, Planets and atoms, angels and insects, all ranks and orders of creatures hang dependent on God's sovereign will, and if one link in the chain of dependence were broken, they would perish. Quote. He who strung the stars in space is also he who designed the strands of our DNA, and none of that nor anything that exists in the vast space between will perish because he who cares for them never sleeps nor slumbers. And he who cares for them is named in the context of verse 16 as Yahweh, owing back to the beginning of verse 14. And from there he is referred to in pronoun, but not by name. But this is the name that those pronouns point back to. And this, I think, is strangely wonderful and not to be passed over quickly. As I've already pointed out often in Scripture, when God is being connected to his creation and either the making of it or the sustaining care of it, he is named as Elohim. Because that's what the name is designed to do. But here it is Yahweh who is kneeling to feed all of creation from his hand. Ergo, his nature is infinite, his being incomparable. He defies description and discernment, and yet he is not clinical or disassociated or detached. He is the God of all power. He is entirely other. He defies definition and description and understanding, and yet he is also the loving, personal caretaker of all things. Infinitely beyond creation, and yet intimately involved in its care. Now, there is one more thought that I wish to convey before I close this point, and I do want to make this very, very clear. God's kindness slash his goodness and his wrath are not only not to be weighted the same way by us, they are also never to be understood as being in opposition to each other. They're not weighted the same because wrath is what God does because of who God is, while good is who God is directly. But these are also never to be understood as contradictory. This is always true, but it is especially true as it pertains to the destruction of the wicked as it is seen in verse 20. Ask yourself, they are just the students of literature, in particular this body of work, Why does God destroy the wicked in context? As indicated at the end of this psalm. Verse 19, he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. So God's destroying the wicked in order to save the good, which is, of course, itself good and kind. In verse 19, they cry out to him for salvation. And in verse 20, He saves them by destroying their oppressors. So understand, God's goodness is unmitigated. It doesn't need to be qualified by anything. As in, well, God is good, but he also punishes sin. No, he's just good. As David says unambiguously, he is kind in all his deeds. He is good to all. It is because he is good that he punishes sin. Now, that's all true about punishment of sin being the result of God's goodness and not being in opposition to it. But on a heart and soul level, please also know that it is okay to just say that the Lord is good and to leave it at that and to not feel inclined to balance it every single time. And I'll also say that you should understand something about balance if that's the way you think. Balance is a matter of bringing back what is imbalanced to the center. But I suspect that you, like me, don't so much have a difficult time Tearing yourself away from the meditations of a God who is good and only good all the time. I think for you, it's probably much like me and you have to tear yourself away from constant contemplations of a wicked world because you feel like you're drowning in it. So if you want to bring it back to balance, then understand your excess to begin with and where center actually is. But God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. No asterisk, no qualifications needed. God is also, as previously noted briefly, righteous. And they say all the time that this is why God judges sinners according to their sins, and they say rightly. That's a fact. Not a fact we should ignore or overlook or certainly not apologize for. But is righteousness not also involved in why God saves sinners from their sin. No, that's God's love, and you're getting the two confused, and not his righteousness. Well, first off, God isn't schizophrenic. So he doesn't have one voice telling him to be righteous and the other voice telling him to be loving, and then whichever one wins determines salvation or damnation for this soul or for that soul. Oh, God saves sinners because of his love and because of his grace, and yes, because of his righteousness and not in spite of it or by being indifferent to it. Understand that righteousness is not moral neutrality. If this were the case, it would simply mean that God responds to us in keeping with how we have behaved toward Him, which if you don't know, let me help you understand, that would be extremely bad. All righteousness, though, is positive good. And positive good is good, not limited by weights and measured measures and what's owed. Positive good, then, is unfettered by mere math. And so disparate outcomes doesn't mean disparate righteousness. Why does God judge the wicked as in verse 20? Well, because righteousness requires justice, yes. But righteousness also often supplies what is required. It is a part of what motivates that. Because righteousness isn't merely moral neutrality that merely gives what is warranted. Moral neutrality is transactional like that, or at least moral neutrality would be transactional like that if it actually existed, but it doesn't Because as Jesus said, there aren't any fence-sitters. You're either with me or you're against me. But because people think in these terms, I speak in these terms. Positive righteousness, though, is able to give grace, not because it must, but because it can. And so righteousness, along with grace and other motivations, causes God to, verse 14, sustain all who fall and raise up all who are bowed down. And this is all excluded to the context of the believing. For the unbeliever... Righteousness is a sword that will cut them down. For us it is a shield of protection. Righteousness is what was imputed to us on the cross and the fact of its imputation was righteous too. So God is righteous for our good, Christian, and his goodness toward us is also righteous because he has made it so. But goodness is more broad and so David would like to help focus us even further on what God's goodness is moving forward in verse 8. The Lord is also gracious and merciful. Now, grace is abundant goodness despite abundant sin, and in its result we understand its essence, and that is why the result of this immediately follows after its mention. Also in verse 8, the good God is slow to anger and great in loving kindness. Now, why should God's anger be slow? God is holy. We are wholly evil. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-E-Y. I can't spell. You understand? Two different kinds of holy. We are all the time in rebellion against him. He is all the time perfect. Why should his anger be slow? Well, his anger should not be slow, thinking only logically. And that's why it's grace. But mercy, though distinct from grace, is also clarified by slow to anger, and I think, though, more so by loving kindness. Let me here differentiate this term for mercy from a more New Testament doctrinal usage. A lot of you are very well versed in defining mercy and grace and very able in your definitions to differentiate the two. You would say of mercy, thinking in a New Testament doctrinal sense, mercy is not getting what you're owed. And when we're talking about the wrath of God, this is obviously magnificent. Okay? Okay that the Lord forbears, that he, that he overlooks our sin. But then you would say that grace is something beyond that. Grace is not only not getting what you are owed, it is getting what you are not owed. What are the greatest riches in the universe, the fullness of who God is, the unfathomable, unsearchable riches of Christ. But that definition of mercy here doesn't really hold Mercy is not merely the negation of something as wonderful as the negation of God's wrath would be. Mercy is the positive uh, ascribing of something to us. Mercy, as it occurs multiple times in this psalm, speaks to an overabundant and paternal, that is, fatherly kind of care. Plumer renders the mercy of verse 8 as great mercy, trying to communicate this, the mercy of verse 9 as tender mercies. Calvin similarly has verse 8 as great in mercy. They are recognizing in their own ways the qualitative excellence of this, and they're trying to account for the fact that bare mercy doesn't seem to cut it. And again, both of these men ascribe a deep sense of paternity to this or fatherly care. So to help you understand what's happening here, I want you to think of a human father. Human father, he goes to work, he... uh, earns a paycheck and he gives to his children the mercy of providing for them food through this. Duty also, yes, but mercy as well so we're not mutually exclusive. Okay, so he may perform uh, mercy, give mercy in that way. That's not the sense of what's happening here. sense of what is happening here is that that father, yes, he provides for the means to, provo- to uh, purchase the food but the preparation of it is not mediated through his wife. Preparation of it is something that occurs by him, and he personally feeds a child as well. So in this instance, you have a dad. Think of a toddler, son or daughter. And he pulls this little child up, and he puts them in their high chair, and he latches the little tray in front of them, and he puts on their bib, And he takes the spoon and he does all that is necessary to feed them, cleaning them while he goes. That is the idea here. But in this instance, it's not a human father with his toddler son. It is Yahweh from everlasting. Tending to all creatures with that kind of loving kindness, but especially those who know him and love him and belong to him, the people of the covenant. So that's who the psalmist knows God to be. But how does he know? How does he know that God is this way? Well, he knows who God is because he knows who God has been. And that leads us back to our primary thesis, which is remembering the past so that we are not lost in the present and so that we do not lose the future. And to begin with this, let's look first to verses 6 and 7, and we'll spend considerable time unpacking this. Men shall speak of, and I'm going to emphasize things on purpose, which I'll explain after. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness, and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. In those two verses, we have four actions or attributes of God listed as being committed to memory and uttered, and we will isolate each of these and I will expand upon how we are to apply memorializing and communicating them. The first is, in verse 6, the power of Yahweh's awesome acts. Now, we're going to expand this category, but before we do, we do well to consider what this most directly involves for David in this psalm, and the answers are clear. God's awesome acts in Psalm 145 are the preservation of all people in this life and the preservation of his special people forever. And to the former, consider again, verse 15, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The grandfather, as I have said to you previously, of all eyes in the modern era is that creation is self-creating, that it is self-sustaining or self-maintaining. And so it is critical that we tell the world of God's sustaining work and that we remind ourselves. And this can be harder than it should be. We're busy people. We work. Sometimes, unfortunately, we live uh, hand to mouth, as they say. When you live that way, all you see is your hand and your mouth and your own hand putting food into your mouth. You're often so overwhelmed with acquiring your sustenance that you lose sight of the fact that all that you have acquired first came from God. But God is so good that he literally paints the sky with a reminder of exactly this. It is the bow that follows the rain, also known as the rainbow. speaking to not only the fact that it will not destroy the world in that way, but that it will also obviously provide for it. Genesis 9, 8 through 15, God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is a sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. Anthropomorphically speaking, God says he remembers too. What he remembers is that he won't destroy again in that way but that he will provide Now, that sign has obviously been annexed by the pagans, but it rightly belongs to us. And we are to tell the world that it is so and that the rainbow is the signature on God's covenant with man and that that covenant is the reason why they presently have air to breathe and water to drink and food to eat and sunshine to light the day and so on and so forth. And we must be intentional about this with the world and each other and our children. It is in all of our natures to look down more than we look up. But remembrance of God's provision is found in looking up, and so we must, and that, of course, is true in more than one way. But as profound as God's sustaining work over creation is, it is certainly not as dear to us as the fact that he sustains all of us as believers forever. Right out of the gate, David speaks of a forever king and his forever kingdom. I will extol you, my God, O king, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. That was verse 1 and verse 2. Forever king, forever kingdom. Do you know who populates this forever kingdom? Well, answer seems intuitive. It's forever citizens. Verses 20 and 21, the Lord keeps all who love him. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. And as we have celebrated the intimate care of Yahweh over His creation, generally, we must celebrate all the more His intimate care over us. Look to verses 18 and 19. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear Him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. Right now, this world is populated by unknown millions of God's eternal citizens. And we are spread over the face of the earth, in our skin is variegated one to the next. And we speak different languages, and we occupy different nations, and we understand many things in many different ways. But we all call upon him in truth, as David says, which means that we all understand and savingly believe that Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, who was crucified, has been raised by God from the dead. He is the stone which was rejected by the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.10-12. through 12. See, we didn't leave Acts altogether, did we? And all of us pray in the name of Jesus, and we say with David in this final psalm of his, My God, O King, I too Will bless your name forever and ever. Great are you, Lord, and highly to be praised, and your greatness is unsearchable. I will eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. You are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Lord, you sustain me when I fall, and you raise me up when I am bowed down. My eyes look to you, and you give me this day my daily bread. You open your hand and satisfy me. You are righteous in all your ways and kind. Please hear my cry and save me. Lord, I love you, and you keep me. And so my mouth will speak your praise, Yahweh, and all flesh will bless your holy name forever and ever when your kingdom comes and your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And do you know that Yahweh can hear as many of these that pray to him at one time all at the same time? Phone lines never get congested. The server never dumps. Do you know why David has such confidence that God will hear from his godly ones? Because he always has. Because God heard his father Abraham and his father Isaac and his father Jacob And his father, Father Jesse, and the believing children spread across the world know that because King Jesus suffered the little children to come unto him at any time while he was on the earth, they can come unto him at any time now. In a myriad of different ways, speaking or simply thinking, in any posture, eyes closed, Or open, hands raised or folded, laughing or crying, or if unable to speak, they still may come to Him. Because in that instance, the Spirit Himself will put to words their inconsolable grief. And the Lord will sustain them as He has, all the people of the covenant as He always has, by the power of His awesome works. There's a perennial question. Does prayer have power? does prayer of power certainly but remember that in this equation we utter the prayers and he supplies the power but next we must remember and remind others of the greatness of God as it occurs in verse 6 but also according to verse 3 what was again the nature of God's greatness it is unsearchable as I said enigmatic or unknowable or literally translated there is not a search but while God's greatness is unsearchable, the effects of it in the past certainly are not. I feel like we have a record of these that we may return to in order to remember them. And in this work, there are events like the creation of the heavens and the earth, creation of man, the destruction of untold masses by a global flood, When God littered the earth with the bodies of all who had rebelled against him, which was almost all of mankind, save only Noah and his family, there is the formation of a holy people to bear his name from a single and very flawed man. There is the destruction of the nations or smaller states that opposed him directly or opposed him by opposing his people including, though not limited to, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Cadmonites, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Perizzites, the Rephaites, Pharaoh's Egypt under Moses, Assyria, Persia, Babylon, Greece, Rome, and coming soon, America, if she does not repent. But through all of this annihilation, he preserved the seed of Abraham, which is amazing. Because destruction was all around. And yet the seed of salvation was preserved through it. Savior of mankind was delivered. And what was and is and always will be his greatest work. Speak of the victories of God. Speak of as many of them as you are able and speak of them often. But speak of none of them as often as God's victory over sin and death and hell and Satan on Christ's cross. Next, David says that they shall eagerly utter the memory of his abundant goodness. As previously noted, goodness is also kindness. And to what examples could we point in the history of our people to give us a testimony of this? Let me give you some ideas. How about our first father and our first mother? having their nakedness and their shame covered by an animal skin from the first sacrifice that was made by God, and they receive this great kindness and care immediately after they hurl all of God's creation into sin and death? How about a child of laughter born to nearly century-old parents? How about the spurned Hagar, visited and comforted by Christ himself? How about the forgiveness given by Joseph through God to the brothers who betrayed him? How about a widow's oil that wouldn't run dry? How about manna and quail and water from a rock to people who were hungry and thirsty? Or a barren woman weeping before the Lord and becoming the mother of a high priest? Or the salvation of a prostitute who became the rung on the genealogical ladder that gave the world its savior. Or the salvation of a Moabitess who became a Jew, who became the ancestress of King David, who is writing the psalm that we are reading. Or David carrying the misshapen Mephibosheth because he could not carry himself. Or how about the greater David carrying the misshapen us because we cannot carry ourselves. Or a virgin of no great status having her womb blessed with the incarnate God. Or an old man named Simeon having his life preserved long enough to hold in his arms before he leaves this world the savior of the world for whom he had long awaited. Or an outpouring of miracles through Jesus that vastly outstripped all miracles done before or after him to the effect that those who had never seen gained sight and those who had never walked now leapt and ran And lepers were made clean and demoniacs freed, and the dead were raised, and the poor of this world were given the riches of God in eternal life when he who healed others willfully submitted to be maimed unto death so that we would all, Psalm 145, 1, bless the name of our God and our King forever and ever. If you've never assembled a list like that, first off, you should. But if you haven't, I'll... Educate you as to the difficulty of it. You know know what makes that hard? Figuring out what you're going to leave out. Indeed we shall eagerly utter the memory of his abundant goodness. And then that only leaves the righteousness of verse 6. Which is a righteousness that could scorch the sun and did scorch Sodom, but that has become our salvation, that is total moral perfection, not even a return to the innocence of our first parents, but a positive righteousness that can never fall because he who upholds the world by the word of his power will never let it fall because it is his righteousness. And it was this righteousness that Moses wanted to put eyes on, but it was too great. It is, in fact, the righteousness that the seraphim now shield their eyes from, even though they were created to occupy that space. Nevertheless, they still cannot bear it. It is the righteousness that opened the gates of heaven in Psalm 24 and the righteousness that David yearned for in a psalm that we read just earlier in our regular readings through the psalms. One thing. I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. Psalm 27.4, which is ultimately fulfilled in the eternal state. And do you know that that ultimate unction was granted? Do you know that for 3,000 years it has been being granted for David? And all of this is, of course, connected to His opening in our psalm. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. And do you know why David's prayer, along with these lines, was granted? Because as the Holy One of Israel said himself, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. For they will be satisfied. Let me tell you, if you thought that goodness was too common a word for God, just wait until you see and experience the full satisfaction of God. Eye has not seen and ear has not heard. And mind cannot conceive this side of heaven. We know whom we have believed that he is able to bring us to the other side of heaven because as a people we have known him since Abraham, since even creation. And he has satisfied us all. And so verse 4, our generation shall praise his works to the next and shall declare his mighty acts. Yes, we will tell our children of the rich history of their people and of their God. And if the past is remembered, then the future will be seen as it is. Do you know what the future is for the people of God? Inevitable. Verses 11 and 12, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of your majesty, of the majesty of your kingdom, including past kingdom and kingdom future. Verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. And verses 20 and 21, the Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth, indeed our mouths, will speak of the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Our past is not a burden. It is a guarantee that an impossibly wonderful future is not impossible, but certain. And we are to tell our children and we are to tell the world. And in this, we will fulfill our greatest commission. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come before you. We thank you that you have made us people of the word. We thank you for the gift of your spirit. We thank you for the revelation of your mind as it is recorded in scripture. We thank you for the prophecy of King David. We thank you that the greatest thing you ever prophesied of was the final king. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are that. You are our inheritance. You are all our future hope. And we praise you now as we will praise you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.